Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview for you. Today's guest is Dr. Dan Plews. Dr. Plews is actually a return guest. He was on, it may have even been a few years ago at this point, it was at least a couple of years ago. And we talked about just his understanding and take on low carbohydrate endurance. So I want to head Dr. Plews back on to chat about some of the updates that we've seen over the years or the things he's learned or seen uh, that differ or add to what we talked about in that other episode. And even maybe a little more specifically, it was a bit timely in the sense that uh, there was a study just released. I did a episode on, it was episode 341 called new study questions, low carbohydrate performance deficit. So I wanted to hear what he thought about that. If he saw any limitations or anything really new and earth shattering about it. Uh, obviously I did an episode on it. So I gave my take on some things where I thought maybe where there were some limitations or what we would see if we would actually stretch it out longer versus what it questions. Maybe it did answer which I think is just a good way to maybe look at any one study because ultimately these studies can only address a certain number of questions. And a lot of times they're going to have to leave other questions off the table or in a lot of cases actually generate new questions. So you don't always walk away feeling like you gained the end all be all answer to anything with some of this stuff, but interesting nonetheless. So if you're interested, check out that episode. I talked to Dr. Dan about that as well as a bunch of other things. So for those of you who want to know a little bit about Dan's background, Dr. Dan Plews is an applied sports scientist. He has a PhD in exercise physiology. He's a researcher and endurance coach. He has competed at a high level in triathlon, including an age group record at Kona. He has worked with numerous world and Olympic class athletes in the sports of rowing, kayak, and triathlon. He employs a low-carbohydrate approach to his own training and racing and with some of his coaching clients. Dr. Plews is actually just coming off a win at a half Ironman recently, so I got a little bit of a download on kind of how things were going in his life with training and racing as well as, like what I said, his view on the landscape of fueling in some of these longer endurance-type sports. Before we get rolling with Dr. Plews, just a few announcements. Also coming up on the guest interview front, I actually have a recorded already that's up on the show Patreon page, is an interview with Amy Berger. So Amy Berger has a, a fun YouTube channel that I like called uh, Keto Without the Crazy. So uh, Amy's actually also a return guest. She was one of the early guests. I think she was in the early enough where it was before the 100th episode. So I wanted to have her back on, find out what she's been up to, and also talk about some of the stuff that she's been doing on her YouTube page because, I mean, just the low-carb ketogenic diet in general, there's just a lot of stuff out there now. So I think people sometimes get a little paralyzed with, what do I need to do? Do I need to be checking blood ketones? Do I need to be doing this? Do I need to be doing that? Do I need to be minimizing this? Do I need to be maximizing that? And at the end of the day, it kind of gets maybe a little complicated for those who have even been doing it for a while in terms of whether they feel like they're doing it right. Uh, Amy Berger tends to kind of try to eliminate a lot of the the high tech uh, extra stuff and kind of go back to the foundations and just say like here here's some simple tasks to kind of take take away and get started. Let's master these and then move on from there if you want to. And I think that sort of a more simplified approach can be very useful for people who get a little paralyzed with the amount of stuff that's actually out there. So 
you want to check that one out early and support the show, you can do that by checking out the show Patreon page, which includes episodes early released and ad free. So you can find details to that at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. Links to that are also in the show notes. Also over on that landing page, zachbitter.com forward slash HPO are the all the episodes, the catalog of all the previous episodes. So if you want to scroll through and see what topics and guests that I've had on previously and check out some of those, that's a good spot to check it out. It's also about all the details and things there too. So it's kind of the one-stop shop for the show Patreon page, show catalog, and some other support options if you're interested in supporting the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you want to help support the show through other means outside of Patreon and monetary support type stuff, uh, what goes a long ways is subscribing on your favorite podcast listening platform. So if you listen to the podcast on a specific platform, clicking subscribe so that the podcast gets updated to you whenever I release a new one, that goes a long way. Also, if you like an episode, sharing it on social media, sharing it with your friends and family, that helps me grow the show as well and bring in new interesting listeners. Also, if interested, I've been recording some solo episodes that I'm going to continue doing on endurance training. The first one was actually titled Endurance Training Simplified. It was episode 344. And what I did with that one is I tried to just take the concept of the different training intensities that I find to be the most important ones to really get comfortable with and really understand the intensities or the perceived effort within those very, very well and break those down into five categories, you could actually make an argument that there are four, depending on the race distance and intensity that you're doing. And I just looked at each one of them and kind of broke them down and tried to share some information about how to maybe better learn them or better apply them in a way that will allow you to really get good at that before getting overly creative with your workout structure and things like that. So after recording that one, I got a lot of good feedback from the listeners. So I thought, hey, Maybe I'll take each one of those categories or at least some of them and break them down in their own individual episodes so we can go a little bit deeper into each one of those intensities that I covered in that one. So I started out with short intervals for the more recent one and titled it Short Interval Simplified. Um, I'm going to do another one. Probably next will probably be Long Interval Simplified. Then I will do like Base Intensity Simplified and Easy Run Simplified. I don't think I'm going to do a long run simplified, even though I could partly because the long run tends to fall into some of the other intensities to degree. And I actually just did a long run episode not that long ago called episode 377, the long run considering the variables. So I feel like I touched on that enough with that one. But ultimately what I think I might do is when I get them all finally recorded is I'll package them all up into a newsletter and send that out to uh, anyone interested about just like to have that kind of list of those episodes, or if, if you want, you can easily just dig through the catalog and find those. So head over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. If you want to see the ones that have been released and uh, stay tuned for the, uh, for the next rounds of them. Also let me know if you have other topics similar to that, that you'd like me to touch on. Uh, I'm always interested in hearing what the listeners are wanting to know or find interesting coming from me. So feel free to reach out to me at zachbitter.com dot com or through one of my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, at ZBitter Endurance on Facebook. All right. Outside of that, one more quick announcement. 
is if you're looking for coaching support, you can head to my website, zachbitter.com. I've got options there from ready-made plans that follow my philosophy. Lots of options with that one from 5k all the way up through hundred miles. I even got a base builder program, a strength athletes endurance program and multiple levels for each of them. So whether you're just getting started or you've been doing this for a while, I've got options for you from a variety of distances and a variety of different starting points. So uh, you could do that. You can also sign up for consultations if you want to chat with me one-on-one -on -one about a specific topic or question you might have, as well as one-on-one -on -one personalized coaching if you want to step it up above some of those uh, pre-made plans and work with me directly. There's options there as well. Uh, Dr. Dan Plews, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Zach. Good to be good to be back, and um, yeah, good to see you. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, I've uh, I was I was looking at kind of the timeline of things. I know we were going to record a little bit earlier, and then we had to reschedule. And then, uh, as fate would have it, a a uh, low carbohydrate performance uh, study kind of came out. So I'm kind of glad now that I didn't have to ring you back up and be like, "Hey, Dan, can you come back on in short notice and talk about this one too?" <laughs> it was it was clearly it was clearly fate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think that's probably a, a fun topic to maybe jump into. And for, for listeners who are interested, I did have an episode with Dan a while back and I'll put in the intro when that was and ways to find it so that if you want to kind of get a background on everything that, that Dan's up to and his background and stuff like that, you can, you can do a double dip and check out that episode as well. But, um, the, ep or the, the study I'm referring to is actually, uh, the more recent one that was titled low and high carbohydrate isochloric diets on performance, fat oxidation, glucose, and cardiometabolic health in middle-aged males, where I thought it was really interesting because it sort of looked at just like, if we send these, these guys out for what they used as a one mile time trial, and then a six by 800 session, are we going to notice a performance dip if they're st sticking to what was essentially a pretty strict ketogenic diet. I think they were like right around 50 grams of carbohydrate, give or take a few grams. So lower than what I would have, what, what I would do personally, uh, being on a low carbohydrate diet. So I was really interested to kind of see kind of what all played out there. And, um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts kind of going into it, uh, just what was your, did you have any anticipation of what they would maybe find? And then did anything kind of surprise you at the results of it all? Well, not not really, because I mean, I don't know if you know, we published a paper that was, um, I think it was also in Frontiers, but we basically we looked at a very low carbohydrate diet for a period of twelve weeks. So it was it was quite a long one. It was it was similarly less than less than uh less than fifty grams. Mm -hmm. And we, what we looked at was basically the ability to perform high intense interval training. So it was it was intervals on the bike, but it was all at one hundred and ten percent of VO two max. So slightly slightly different when I mean, we didn't really measure fat oxidation during but what we did find was we did find there was no difference between the groups so low carbohydrate or high carbohydrate the the low carbohydrate group did not have their ability to do the high intensity intervals diminished at all so you know it's kind of a similar thing in this study six eight hundred so eight hundred is probably quite close to three minutes as well for most people two and a half to three minutes i'm guessing um and you know they they found similar things and that you know, there was no difference between the groups um and there was no really real real reduction so i think it's i think it's not really surprising but some of the main outcomes that i found particularly interesting was the levels of fat oxidation that were recorded in the study you know like up to 1.8 grams per minute during such exercise which is exceptionally high and way higher than we're used to seeing and um 
and what's interesting and funnily enough as i was saying to zach you just you were saying to you just before the uh we started the podcast is that there's actually a follow-up kind of it's more of a, a more of a, an opinion piece that's just been published as well also in frontiers that was um there was basically it talked about this study where tim notes was the lead author and i was actually one of the reviewers on that paper as well so so i was really fortunate enough to read it before it came out and kind of give my opinions and add, add a little bit to it um but yeah but what was what was what was key in that was is 1.8 grams per minute and that's measured doing indirect calorimetry so that's using the oxygen basically putting the mask on and testing it which would typically actually underestimate levels of fat oxidation because we can't really measure fat oxidation at more than 85 um 85 of vo2 max because of the because once we get up to a high intensity we start producing lactate and then we have to buffer that lactate um by well by lowering the so the pH gets lower we buffer the lactate via carbonate or bicarbonate and therefore we buffer it with VCO2 and because of that the VCO2 proportion goes up really really high and that means that we generally underestimate the fertilization we're not really able to measure it actually so um although we can question the, the how accurate the measurement is at that intensity you can only question that it might be higher not mm. lower so i think that's um i think that's super super interesting and and I, and you know i've always been one to say like it always seems funny to me if you measure if you measure people in the lab and you increase the intensity eventually you'll see people with minus a minus percentage of fat metabolism right or going to the minus numbers which is, of course is is impossible you can't have you can't have a <laughs> minus number. fat while you're working out yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly you, you know so that's where the, that's where the errors come in so you're mm. having these minus percentages of fat metabolism um but the this idea that i've always struggled with the idea that fat metabolism is, fat metabolism basically goes to zero at high intensities because i i just i think mechanistically it makes absolutely no sense to make it to, for it to go to zero when you can still obviously use it to produce um, some ATP. I don't know why, you know, maybe not a lot of those higher intensities, but I think it's still making a much higher contribution than we um, than we realize. And just just to finish off, I, there's, a, there's a professor out here in um, New Zealand called Dave Rollins, and he's been working on some like isotope tracer data that's trying to look at the um the true level of fat oxidation during high intensity exercise which is proving to be quite difficult because um because of the bicarbonate pool and the way that that changes during high intensity exercise um but he but some of his early data is very suggestive that fat metabolism even at you know 95 100 of vo2 mass is much higher than what we believe it to be and and what certainly industry pushes us to believe because then Obviously, we we can think that we all we need is carbohydrates, which I don't believe is is the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would seem like if there was any room to still have a contributor of any sort, regardless of fat or otherwise, it would be like, you know, it would be it would make sense that your body would try to maintain that. It wouldn't necessarily try to like just go completely to zero unless unless of course you're I guess mainlining enough carbohydrate where you sort of have, or you're, you're following a really high carbohydrate and following what we're kind of seeing some people kind of test the limits to, which is like a gut training type of situation. Whereas then maybe, maybe in that yeah. situation, your body gives up on a certain substrate. In yeah, order to... perhaps. But I think what, what, what's important to realize is that, you know, you know, as, 
as most athletes and coaches and nutritionists understand, you know, this idea that, you know, carbohydrate, fat usage at a high intensity is, is zero, right? It goes to zero, but it's not used at all. I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that isn't the case, but we certainly don't know it is the case. And sure. I think that's, that's, um, that's an important differentiation, you know, and I don't think we can accept that it is, it is true because we just do not have the ability to measure it accurately as, as of yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think like one of the more interesting data points of that study too, along the lines of fat oxidation rates was to like, when you look at the literature that they would produce earlier from just fat oxidation rates, essentially moving to zero, it was at like 85% of VO2 max where with this particular study, I think I can't remember what the exact numbers were, but I mean, it was increasing. It's 90, 95. Yeah. 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 So it was like, it was well past what would you normally be just not, not only was the crossover point pushed further back, but when you get up well past um, like aerobic threshold and up into, like I mentioned, like 85% VO2 max, we're still seeing relatively high fat oxidation rates at that point. And, um, and the other thing that was kind of interesting too, I think was just the level of some of the fat oxidation rates from some of the participants where I think one participant, it was a 10 person study. So like you got some, it's always fun to dig into the individuals within it to kind of see like, where did they get these averages from in terms of like the spread amongst the population that they, they tested. And there was someone who was like above two, two, uh, two grams per minute. And I was yeah. just thinking, yeah, I was just thinking like, just, you know, the level of fat oxidation at that point, uh, uh, I guess I was, I wasn't overly surprised to see that given that like when I did, I was a participant of the faster study back in, I mean, it was back in 2014 at this point, it doesn't seem like it was almost 10 years ago, but it was. And wow. God, 10 years. That's, that's amazing. I know it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing how long ago that was at this point, but I think I was right around like just under 1.6, um, for yeah. my my peak fat ox, which was right around the average of the group that they had from the high fat group. And I wasn't following what I wasn't as low carbohydrate, like in the weeks, months leading into that study as these guys were sitting at around 50 grams. Granted, yeah. I was training a lot more than them as well. Cause I think their training threshold was actually quite, quite low compared to what I was doing. So who knows how that normalizes with the, the lifestyle variants, but um, still like, like I would imagine if I would go down to kind of a more, strict gram ceiling of 50 or something like that my fat oxidation rates would go up quite a bit even beyond be above and beyond what i saw during during that particular study yeah it's um obviously like ex exercise training is one of the main drivers of fat oxidation right I had, it's funny you mentioned it. i had a question the other day uh, i was on a po another podcast where i'm training a professional triathlete and you know with him i'm definitely using more of a right fuel right time approach where mm -hmm. you know we're trying to restrict carbohydrates and then of course, age groupers then come ask me, they say, oh, does that mean I don't, because lots of age groups, they don't really want to, if they want to improve the fat oxidation, the, the last thing they want to do is, is stop eating their bread, right? So they think it's, <laughs> then it's an excuse to, um, to not have to do like a ketogenic phase. Mm -hmm. But I have to explain that, you know, you're not a professional, you're not training 30 hours a week. So you've got to, you've got to push the lever in other ways, right? And with you, you're obviously training so much. So I don't think that you would have to be, you know, you you've got two, you've got two pillars, you've got two like levers to pull. You've got your training on one side and the diet on the other. You really pull on the training lever. You don't have to pull very much on the diet lever. If you really don't do much of the training, you've got to pull quite hard on the diet lever. And I think that's a, a, a really important differentiation and a, a important way to think about things. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that is a really good point because you can easily go down this kind of view of just like, well, improving fat oxidation rates is done one way when in reality, like, like you said, there's multiple levers. Some are going to be bigger ones in terms of how much of a difference it makes uh, from what I can tell. But really like you have things like your training, like you could have someone just following a moderate, typical moderate high carbohydrate diet. And if they add training to the context, their fat oxidation rates are going to prove to some degree. If they reposition the carbohydrates they're eating, say further away from their workout, they may improve their fat oxidation rates. And I think I was, I was talking to Dr. Mike Nelson, who's been on the show a few times and he was, he sent a study to me. This is maybe almost a year ago at this point. And it was kind of like, I don't know that it necessarily was conclusive in any way, but they, they suggested that even just the type of carbohydrate could play some role in your fat oxygenation rates. So like a simple carbohydrate. I would would say that has to be true, right? Because Mm -hmm. the type of heart, different types of carbohydrates will have direct implications on your insulin production. Mm -hmm. So more sugary refined is, you know, increase your insulin, going to blunt your fat metabolism a little bit more. Whereas something that's probably a little bit more starchy or a little more, you know, a bit more um, wholesome would not have the same implications. Like I would, I would, I would expect. Um, It's an interesting one. Like, you know, like the, if you look at the data, the, the train low, like the, the, so I've done the train low kind of um, training right fuel, right time. And I've had so like the number of cases in basically I've never had it not work. It -hmm. works all the time. Like, and people will always improve their fat oxidation. They would just, restrict carbohydrates the night before and in the morning they do their training in a somewhat depleted state they will definitely increase you know their fat oxidation definitely increases but you know if you look at the research it's yet to show that that has long-term implications it definitely shows that during that training session your fat oxidation is improved but whether that works chronically over time like so when you go back to a normal diet it's also improved is um is a bit unequivocal really but um but I, um, I just think that those that, that, that it's not being done properly. It's not being done long enough. People haven't been training hard enough um, for them to see the, the true effects because, um, you know, now you know, we're talking multiple, you know, double digits of athletes who I've, who I've seen just not by doing a low-carbohydrate approach, just by doing the right fuel, right time approach, actually seen some big, big changes in their levels of fat oxidation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're seeing that more and more like in, in now that, especially now that we have more athletes that are actually kind of going through the full process of it and doing it for a long enough period of time too, where we actually have some, some longevity to the approaches that individuals are doing too. And I know um, I had Leighton Phillips on not too long ago to kind of just talk about just his perspective with all of it and what he's seen. And, you know, like Matt Kerr was obviously one of the examples that he had who, um, I mean, it's just a, I think Matt, Matt Kerr though, he, he, I don't know whether he's a good example because he was, he was, he was very low. He was actually following a very low carb diet, you know, as well. Mm-hmm. So he went through, he basically did the exact same procedure as we did in LDT 101 is he did a ketogenic phase three to four weeks. Then he went on to a low carb diet. So I think that has more legs, but what, I, what I'm saying is that I think there's also athletes who don't even go low carb at all. It's just all petitioning carbohydrates around training. That oh. also seems to have a very effective, it also seems to be quite effective. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. The, the other thing with the study that I kind of thought was really interesting was just 
the application of what this maybe means to the average runner versus what we typically see with studies like this, where it tends to be, well, we tested, you know, some high performing athletes and we got this data versus what does this actually mean? You know, we, we, we look at, I mean, the, the, I'm going to say it again, like the train your gut approach is like, okay, we see professional athletes doing this, people who are like doubling or tripling the resting metabolic data, the resting metabolic rate on some of their like big sessions and race days sometimes. And it's like, yeah, I can see a path forward where like they're just, their workload is so high that they have like an opportunity to say, taking carbohydrate on a 60 minute easy run and everything else that comes with it versus your average person, they start doing that. And it's like, they're going to take a rather large chunk out of their daily energy requirement simply by training their gut. And then you have to ask like, what are the ramifications outside of that? And I think maybe this study highlighted that to some degree where three out of the 10 participants on the moderate to high carbohydrate diet actually were producing, um, uh, their, their blood glucose scores, their rest or their, their fasting blood glucose scores were in the pre-diabetic range. And it wasn't like they came in like that. In fact, those same individuals, when they reversed and went on the low carbohydrate, or in this case, ketogenic diet, they were actually the highest fat oxidation rate folks as well. And their, their, uh, fasting blood glucose dropped, dropped down well below, uh, the, the crossover point from normal to pre-diabetic into, I think even to the eighties in most cases, uh, yeah. what were your thoughts kind of on that side of the study? And I yeah, guess, and, was and, it surprising? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think to me, that was the, that was the best part of the study because I think, you know, as, as people reading that study and anyone who runs, anyone who does triathlon, anyone who does these events, they're inevitably doing it because they want to be leading a healthier life. Right. And I think general sports nutrition guidelines do not, they, they think they think through one lens is that it's performance, performance, performance. And, you know, we know that on one side now that it probably carbohydrates aren't aren't necessarily necessary to really enhance your performance. It's been shown in this study. And there's even a meta analysis that was produced that looks at the difference between met, the, low carbohydrate and high carbohydrate studies. And, the you know, that's not me saying it. this is a meta analysis that said there's, there's literally it's hard to say there is a difference between low, low and high carbohydrate diets when it comes to endurance performance. But I think to, to the, the point I'm trying to make is that in the end of the day, you run because you want to be healthier. So you have to think of it in that holistic manner. And, and for many people, in fact, in this study, 30% of them, 30% um, of the population in this study needed to have a low carbohydrate diet. Otherwise, they were going to have some kind of metabolic dysfunction. Right. So they're, so they're, they're doing running to be healthy. They're following the dietary guidelines of a high carbohydrate diet because they're running. They're actually going to, they're actually making themselves worse or less healthy and not more healthy. And I think that's something that definitely has to be considered when, um, when people are at, um, thinking about the right diet for them. You know, um, I think it's more than just, um, it's more than just performance. And um, Phil Maffetone and Paul Lawson, they published a, a great paper that was called Athletes Fit But Unhealthy. You know, and they, and they talk about the, the whole HPA axis and how you know if we get it wrong and we don't consider um, consider what we're doing in terms of how we're how we're partitioning our high intensity exercise, making sure our low intensity is low enough, making sure we're not having refined sugars and on a lower carbohydrate diet. You know, the whole we can actually get into a, a bit of um, disarray. And we, although we're fit overall, we can actually be quite unhealthy. And I think 
that is the the key the, one of the key messages of of this paper is that you know you're more likely to be on the healthier side if you do limit the the carbohydrates Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the other interesting thing about this study that maybe has it stand out from some of the other low carbohydrate studies, regardless of whether it was performance or just health and you know weight management and things like that of the past, is they actually controlled for things like weight loss, and and both groups actually ended up losing a little bit of weight over the stretch of their kind of planned dietary practice, but it was in it was in it was consistent with one another, so it's not like you had. The, when the when the individuals went low carb, they lost more more weight, and then the high carb group gained weight or something like that, where you have kind of that yeah, kind of contrast. Which, it was which, actually which has has been the case in many many studies, right? Like the loss of the low carb versus high carb studies, the low carb group have typically lost more weight, their power to weights increased, so their VO two max per mil per kilogram has, has increased. But this one was so well controlled in that particular instance that um, mm. that I think. Yeah, it shows that it was it was a really great, really great study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's what that was a question that I was curious about that it sort of did answer as as much as it could anyway was like this uh, this idea of like what are the possible negatives of a moderate high carbohydrate diet with you know an endurance training program with with like that blood sugar control standpoint when when weight is held constant or or even depreciating because like i could totally see like you know if they gain two three pounds it's like yeah if you're eating a lot of carbohydrates and you're gaining weight on it you're probably gonna have a raise in your blood sugar across and then you can point the finger at the weight management side of it versus the the macronutrient but um i was kind of surprised actually that it was three out of 10, I would have, I wouldn't have guessed it to be that if I was asked before the study, but it was uh, clear as day. There was, another, there. there was another study that was published and um, that looked at similar, had a similar, um, I think it was in elite judo, it was martial arts. And they looked at mm-hmm. kind of the metabolic, metabolic um, dis- dysfunction in elite athletes and 30%, again, elite athletes. So it's not um, it's not the first study to actually show it. It's um, it's probably I think the you know athletes be having some kind of metabolic dysfunction and being um, a little bit insulin resistance is there's a, probably a higher prevalence than we realize. And I think all you have to do is look at you know if you go to a triathlon, there's loads so, you know so many age groupers who are who are competing, and you know you can see that their body composition isn't what you would expect it to be for an athlete who's training 15, 20 hours a week, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, I think it's mainly because they do have some form of insulin resistance and they're, and they have been told that a high carbohydrate is what they need. Um, a high carbohydrate diet is what they need to, for their, to optimize their training and recovery, which, you know, we, it's not, which is not the case according to the, now the, the, the data here. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors are my friends at LMNT Electrolytes. They have a wide range of electrolyte supplements and are currently offering listeners to this podcast a free sample pack with purchase. If you are interested in checking them out and letting them know that you came to them through here, you can go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO or to the show sponsor landing page, which is just zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Links to that are in the show notes as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting stuff. So I guess like from a takeaway standpoint, what, what should someone listening to this, who's following an endurance training program, 
questioning whether they're making the right dietary choices? Is this something where it's sort of like, well, if you fit in that 30% that found themselves in a pre-diabetic state, you're likely someone who should be a little more proactive in maybe picking a lower carbohydrate option uh, for yourself versus those other seven? Or is this something where like, even with performance, you're like, this may be sort of a paradigm shift in terms of what people should actually be practicing on average with when it comes to endurance sport? Yeah, I think, um, I think like, you know, if, if, if all things are equal and your, your blood sugar, you're, you're on a high carbohydrate diet, you enjoy eating that way. Um, all your metabolic markers are in within the right range. You've got normal blood sugar. Then you you can't really say that um, a lower carbohydrate is better, um, but I think if you if you are someone who 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 just presents um, certain things like maybe you you bonk very easily when you go out for a run, you um, you you really find it hard to lose weight. Um, you know you 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 have measured your blood glucose in the morning and it's above five at a fast in a fasted state. You know, if you have some, um, you could even measure your HB, HB1C. I'm not a massive fan of with athletes, but, you know, you can measure all these things. And if you are that way in your, in your training, then it's definitely something that you could consider because you can be rest assured that your performance will not, will not deteriorate. If anything, it will probably just get better. Do you think that if this type of protocol was used with, uh, with let's step away from the, the, the population that they use for this test and move into like a more professional athlete setting, is this any indication that professional athletes should be questioning a moderate to high carbohydrate diet as like the standard and be thinking about, um, reducing their carbohydrates or even becoming a ketogenic diet at this point in time, or is there, is this just too many limitations with a study like this to really push the needle anywhere more to that yeah. direction. Um, I think, I think you can, I think it's definitely, you can ask some questions. I think it, it shows that it's definitely not necessary. I think with athletes, like as we talked about at the start, you know, with, you know, different levers to pull, it's probably because they're training so much, it's not as important. Um, and there's always the risk. I think with, with, you know, with professional athletes who are training a lot, the moment you start restricting macros, you restrict overall calorie um, input, and that can be a bit of a problem, you know, because mm-hmm. lots of them struggle to eat enough generally. And if you say, okay, I'm not going to eat any carbohydrates now, then suddenly they just find themselves short on calories. And then obviously there's problems like reds and relative energy deficiency that can be associated with that. So um, I think that's um, something something to be to be aware of. But I do think that um you know if, if you if you want to use a lower carbohydrate uh, um, diet for a period of time to push the needle in certain areas of your physiology you might be might want to improve your body composition you might want to improve your fat metabolism whatever it might be uh, you don't have to worry about your performance being de- deteriorating or something like that happening right so you, you um I think, I think you can, um, I think it just showed you that you can have it as a tool in your toolbox and use it as and when you want to use it. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you find then too? Cause I mean, and you're working with athletes that are putting in like a larger training volume than most of the runners out there just due to the lower impact of the swimming and biking side of things. Is there, is there a number that you're a little more comfortable or I, sh- I should ask if you actually even target a specific gram number. My, my experience has been like, 
when I'm really putting in a lot of volume, if I go by like a gram per day protocol, like you're going to see in a lot of ketogenic protocols, it simply just doesn't account for the acceleration of metabolism. So like what would be 50 grams for me sitting around doing nothing might be 150 grams if I'm putting in like one of my bigger workouts of a training block. Uh, is that any consideration place or do you put a place any consideration on that when you're working with athletes that are skewing lower carb? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not actually for athletes. I'm not a fan of like ketogenic diets because I, I just think it's, I think it's too the, you know, the carbohydrates too low. And, um, and I don't really believe that we're as humans designed to be in ketosis continuously. You know, we, we should be in more of a cyclical ketosis and as athletes, we would typically do that. You know, you'd wake up in the morning, you might have a coffee, go for a run and exercise induced ketosis. You will, you would, you would be in ketosis by the end of end of your run, for example. Mm -hmm. So the typical number that I put is anywhere between hundred and hundred. I find 130 is quite a good sweet spot. So around 130 to 160 grams per day. I mean, that's typically where I sit and the athletes who I coach who follow a lower carb diet also sit around, around that area. But my, the pros who I coach who aren't really interested in the low carbohydrate diet. And I think that's an important differentiation. You have to have good buying from the athlete, right? Otherwise, mm -hmm. there's no point. There's no point persuading them or or making them do it. Um, if they and then and then I decide if if that if their fat oxidation is a limiting factor of success. And don't forget, we're talking about Ironman triathlon, so fat oxidation is important. Um, sure. It's not a, it's not a ten kilometer race walk where it's not really an important factor. Um, then then I would use more of a right fuel right time approach to to mm -hmm. to address their fat oxidation. So um, limiting limiting. Um, reducing glycogen in before exercise and limiting carbohydrates during. So, mm -hmm. and that makes sense. I mean, we're talking about professional athletes at the triathlon, your distance, it's like, they're going to have access to that stuff. Like they're going to have their fat oxidation rate. So you're going to be able to see pretty conclusively, whether it's going to be problematic for them in terms of what energy demands they're going to have at race intensity, and then what their fueling yeah. strategy is going to be required in order to make that exactly. work. Exactly. So so I just started coaching two high-level high-level professionals. Like they're both very good, like super top end. Um, and I, I started coaching them very close to one another. Um, I got them. I had them both in the lab. And you know, and I look at all areas. I don't just look at fat metabolism. I look at all areas of the physiology. But you know, between the two of them, one had um, terrible fat metabolism. Ter the bite threshold wasn't that strong, and the running economy was quite poor. So they're the kind of the three things that 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 jumped out whereas the other one had an exceptional fat metabolism but the other two like like this same athlete um anaerobic threshold cycling was quite low and the running economy was quite poor so you know i i use similar approaches for the threshold and the running economy in terms of to try and boost that up in the program but with one i just left the fat oxidation alone because he wasn't even, this guy wasn't even doing a, a low carbohydrate diet or anything and he was still like 1.3 1.4 grams <laughs> per minute in his highest you know so i'm like well why i don't need to do anything about that you know and this was cycling so um so it's just about knowing what you what you need to do at the right time and understanding what's important for performance you know mm -hmm. yeah no it makes sense and i think kind of like transitions into another kind of topic or question I wanted to kind of address with you, which is just like, there's going to be the scenarios that we saw, like in this particular study we just talked about, or your typical training session, where I think the evidence is mounting that like, the real need to be doing like a bunch of carbohydrate loading before a training session 
it's not going to impact that training session in a meaningful way. So like, if you feel better waking up in the morning, having a cup of coffee, heading out and doing your workout, you don't have to worry like, Oh, my short intervals are going to be compromised. Now, maybe if that creates a big, like you mentioned before, a big calorie deficit that you don't make up at the end of the day, and that becomes a repeated problem, you're going to find other issues come up on a performance front down the road. But assuming that that's not the issue or that's not an issue, what, 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 what do you suspect? Like, especially with these individuals from the study, let's say they're going to do like a marathon or something like that, or maybe let's normalize it to like what you would see in kind of professional sports. And they'll do a race where the intensity is around two hours. Do you suspect for them, are they going to, they're going to want to bring carbohydrates back for that. Right. During the race. Anyway. I mean, I, I think, and this is one of the reasons I'm again, I'm, I'm against the key, key being ketogenic, particularly around racing, because if you, I mean, if you want to quote unquote be ketogenic you have to be in ketosis mm -hmm. and to be in ketosis and to produce ketones your liver has to be depleted of glycogen and 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 one of the mistakes that a lot of people make is they think fatigue you know glycogen is due to glycogen depletion in the muscle so the reason that we're taking carbohydrates during exercise is to you know, diminish the, the level of glycogen depletion in a, a muscular level and that's actually not the case. So if we're taking carbohydrates, the level of depletion in the, the muscle is actually the same. There's no difference. But what we are doing is we are helping the depletion of liver glycogen. And the liver liver is, 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 is often, I think, is underrated how important it is for endurance exercise because that is probably, it, well, it is the thing that is stabilizing your blood glucose. So it's preventing like hyperglycemia and hyperglycemia is general is is the thing that causes fatigue in most cases so if you're starting your exercise or your running race with a depleted liver glycogen you're definitely going to fatigue earlier because you're already going to be somewhat hyperglycemic before you even start or you very shortly will be after you start so you want to start what's important is that you start with um, a high, high levels of liver glycogen fully topped up. And then if you want to take carbohydrates during as well, that's totally fine. But of course, you know, you, you will deplete your liver glycogen even when you sleep. So when you sleep, you have brain activity, you, you take it from your liver. So I, I like to think that you should still have carbohydrates even when you wake up in, you know, a long way from your racing. So you don't, um, so you're not kind of getting an insulin, you know, you're up the other side of the insulin spike before you, before you start racing. And then, um, and then, and then start your race. Generally, athletes on a lower carbohydrate diet, they don't have to take in too much carbohydrate to get stocked up on their muscle glycogen, because they're generally just burning less fat, less carbohydrates in their day to day anyway. So, if you think about, you know, a high carb athlete who takes in 60 grams of carbs, they're probably going to burn 50 grams of that and then and then store 10 whereas a, a low carbohydrate athlete would you know pretty much store 100 of it and keep on burning fat just in their day-to-day -day. so that is it so i find that you know just nipping yourself up to around 200 grams a day three day two and a half days three days before racing is, is generally enough to get um a bit more a bit more in the tank and then um, and top make sure you're fully topped up on the start line mm -hmm. interesting and do you, what do we know about just the interplay of like what you were talking about once the race gets started. Cause I know like, I mean, when we're sitting here, if we both decided to, you know, take in say 50 grams of carbohydrate, now our bodies would release insulin and that would encourage our essentially encourage the reduction of fat metabolism in favor of that exogenous carbohydrate source. But once you're into the event itself, there's going to be an interplay where your body, like we were kind of talking about earlier, isn't going to want to necessarily shut down 
or limit fat oxidation to a large degree? Is there a sweet spot in an event where regardless of what your diet is, you can start a little more liberally taking in carbohydrates yeah. so that you kind of have a double-edged sword, so to speak? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we, we actually published a uh, meta-analysis in sports med on, on this. And we looked at basically all the things that impact fat metabolism. So we looked at habitual diet. We looked at levels of muscle glycogen. We looked at taking carbohydrates during exercise, um, intensity, duration, you know, what, you know, all, all these implications. And of course, one of the things that we found was that really much the sweet spot was about after an hour of exercise, you can take in what you want and it's not really going to do that much to your, to your fat metabolism. Mm-hmm. When, when you're working with athletes at the individual level, are you personalizing how much they're taking in per hour then, or is there a little more of a standard that tends to work for, uh, for, for individuals of a similar diet pattern? Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, there is variations. I, I think when you're dealing with like amateurs and age groupers, if the fat metabolism, if, if I have to look at what the fat metabolism is, because if it's, if it's quite low, I mean, okay, let me start again with this actually. So um, it's, it's a combination between how much power they're producing, right? So if you're producing a lot of power, that's a lot of calories, right? So more power requires more calories. So that would, that could be in the form of carbohydrates and fats, right? It's just, but overall, it's just generally more. And then the other side is the fat metabolism. So in some pros, you can have a situation where their fat metabolism is actually really good, but their calorie requirement is also really high. Mm. So despite their fat metabolism being really good, they're also burning a shit ton of carbs at the same time. So in that particular instance, you might still have to be considering 60 to 90, you know, up to 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour, even though they have a good fat metabolism, purely because they are, you know, they're big guys, they're producing a lot of power and, you know, calories per hour is really, really high. So that's kind of the way I would look at it. And then conversely, you could have on the other side, you might have a, um, a lower end athlete amateur who has a very poor fat metabolism, but they're also producing 100 watts, right? So very little power, very little calories. So you, even though their fat metabolism is poor, they still might not actually need that many grams of carbohydrates, you know? So, um, so that's the kind of the way, the way I, I look at it. But I find that most amateurs, I, I tend to put them between 50 and 60 grams per hour, I work on the fat metabolism before 50 to 60 grams per hour, which I know is quite safe. It avoids them having to have fructose as well, which I think is problematic for a lot of athletes. And um, yeah, I tend to, I tend to find that works, works pretty well. Mm-hmm. And are you coming up with the grams per hour based on their fat, fat oxidation tests when you have that data or? Yeah. I mean, loosely. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I mean, it's not that I'm not, not quite that exact. <laughs> it's not quite that exact. Exactly. So it, I use it as a guide, right. I use it as a bit of a guide to kind of, but mm-hmm. it is, it's, it's just, I'd love to say that do an exact calculation and like say, oh, well, it has to be this many grams of carbs per, you know, well, you know, actually 52.5 grams per cars, but it's just the testing's not that exact, right? So it's hard to, uh, it's hard to know, but I just kind of use it as a rough guide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I mean, ultimately, like if we had all the answers going into the race, it wouldn't be all that much fun because there'd be nothing to find out. Yeah. And to some degree, I think it's like, yeah, you get the data you can, and then you have essentially a ballpark target, and then you have to kind of stress test it and find out. I mean, yeah. Exactly. And I think 50, I think like 60 grams, 50 to 60 grams is a, is a nice number because 
you can limit it. You don't have to take fructose, which we know 30% of the population are not very tolerant of anyway. And it causes a lot of, you know, fructose ingestion during exercise causes a lot of gastrointestinal distress and can potentially also blunt lipolysis and so blunt your fat oxidation. Um, and, uh, and it's just, it's just safe, right? You know, it, 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 you, most people can tolerate that quite easily. Um, and you, you're at the upper limit of what's tolerable anyway in terms of oxidation rates of a pure, like glucose, maltodextrin, whatever it might be. So that's kind of, that's how I um, like to think of it. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I've raced in the past, I've always gone between 50 and 60 grams per hour. Yeah, mm. I think you're the same, right? Yeah. I might go a little lower depending on the duration, but you know, some of the events I'm doing are going to be up 12 plus hours. So it's like my intensity comes down a little bit. You know, the most formulaic I got with it actually was I had a fat oxidation test done and it suggested that like the intensity I was going to be racing at, which was just under my aerobic threshold, uh, was going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of like 80 to 90% fat, 10 to 20% carbohydrate. So I just looked at, well, I'm going to be moving roughly nine miles per hour. That's eight to a thousand calories, 800 to a thousand calories per hour, roughly is what I'm going to be asking my body to give out energy wise. So, um, you know, whatever, you know, run the, run the number, so to speak, and kind of get yourself in like the right range. And I knew like 40 grams seemed to be plenty for that calculation. And I knew I could tolerate 40 grams without a digestive issue in most cases. So 40 grams is kind of what I pinned it to that day. I think I was, I think I was pretty consistent too with that one. Uh, I might've like went up to 50 on a couple occasions on near the end of the race, but more or less around 40. Yeah. Yeah. And then that, I think that's, the, that's a very um, intelligent way to, to go about it, you know? And I think, I think that makes, makes a lot of sense. We published a paper actually that was in sports medicine. It was called um, different horses on the same horses where we looked at like, because there's some like pros published the data, the power numbers. And, you know, we said, okay, you know, if you've got the pro who's producing 310 watts over the course of an Ironman, even if their fat oxidation is at 1.4 grams per minute, an hour um, per minute, sorry, which it, which, it, I don't, which it wouldn't be actually in that particular situation, they still actually couldn't support, um, support themselves without taking in quite a bit of carbohydrate. And I think that's the, that's the crux of the matter. But if you've got another athlete who's doing 200 watts, you actually could support yourself with mm -hmm. very, very little carbohydrate. So um, if, if your fat metabolism, especially if your fat metabolism is high, then you wouldn't need very much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think about this when you start getting into like 24 hour events or just like the, you know, ultra running's goofy where we have such different environments where, I mean, a lot of people, their goal is to finish in a day. Like you're out on a trail and it's like they're, the reality is 24 hours is a really sound target for them. And it's like the intensity you're moving at when you're going to be out there for 24 hours is very low. So you get, you start, you start getting into that, that, that type of duration and intensity where you can start asking some of the, the more interesting questions, I think around whether carbohydrate fueling, uh, or how necessary is it in that context? Um, you outside just need food, right? yeah, I think so. Well, and that was another Interesting thing too, because I think like a lot of the the research I've seen that looks at just the rate of perceived exertion declining by ingesting carbohydrate, like, is there tests that they've tried other things other than carbohydrate? Like, like if I'm out there running and I'm feeling a little bit like the effort is picking up at a given pace because I'm burning a lot of calories or for whatever reason, and I take in like 
bacon or something like that is the ingestion of food maybe also lower the rate yeah, of I, I no i mean there's a lot of receptors and whatnot in the gut and even i think as, as, as food goes through the down the throat right and into the mm -hmm. stomach there's i think it detects and it, it, it has some sort of detection that can detect the energy coming in so um i don't know whether there's any research to suggest it but you know a lot of that stuff is just receptors in the mouth as well right mm -hmm. like receptions of and it's perceptions our brain to perceive exertion they even go down with people just swirling sugar you know carbohydrate drinks and not even drinking it so there's a bit to be said for that as well like caffeinated gum and gum with carbohydrate and not actually swallowing it people still have lower rates of perceived exertion so like typically when i'm doing an ironman um when i come into the last like 5k or what whatnot um and i'm going for an a station i'll just literally swirl the coke i won't swallow it because i'm not gonna nothing's gonna be happening to that in the in in that mm. instance when I'm getting so close to the finish. So I'm like, why do I want to put it into my body? It's yeah. going to be extra, extra weight for me. So yeah. I just literally swirl it and spit it out <laughs> mm -hmm. and get the, get, get the benefit from that that way. Yeah. I've, I've actually used hard candies for a similar purpose in races before too, just to kind of have that more constant signal yeah. where it's like, it's a relatively low amount. I mean, you're looking at like five grams of carbohydrate for one of those, but just the relative slow processing of yeah, and, and the receptors in the mouth. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, I mean, yeah. It's, it's, um, it's, it's quite a fascinating research that is actually mm -hmm. quite cool. It um, is. The only, the only thing I would, I would say is um, I think like, so like the, you know, the research now where people, where there's a lot looking at ingestion of 120 grams per hour and training the gut. And I think like, if you look at the data, one is that the, the research that shows that even when athletes are ingesting 120 grams an hour, they're typically not oxidizing more than 90 grams per 90 grams. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, so sorry. Yeah. So, yeah. So they're not, they're not really doing more than more than 90 grams, but, um, but what's interesting is I do think perhaps those higher ingestion rates might have their um, utility in races that are over multiple days because it might allow you to take in more calories during the days before, which keeps you a little bit more stocked up because it's not like it's going nowhere. It's got to mm -hmm. be going somewhere, I'm assuming. I think you know, I wrote a blog on this that might maybe like in the Tour de France or something like that, those larger ingestion rates might have a say, but I don't think 120 grams is um is really for people doing single day races and i also don't think that training the gut is a thing that people really need to consider or worry about and i i, I reckon that you need to look at both sides of the coin right you can you want to train the gut or do you want to increase your final sedation i would rather increase my final sedation and, and carry less and even in those studies that look at those gut training studies they're very, very positive in showing that, yes, you can tolerate more. You, you train the gut, you can tolerate that amount more carbohydrate, but it doesn't necessarily show that they're effective in increasing your levels of oxidation. So you, it doesn't mean that you're going to be using more of those carbohydrates. You're literally just taking them in. And that's where I think like Morton Gel, for example, they've done an amazing job at making people take more carbohydrates because you can tolerate more of it, yeah. but it's not doing anything. And so yeah. now they have this product where they people can have more so they can sell more and um but it's not actually it's not actually doing anything really i mean the research shows that it doesn't improve oxidation but it's been shown time and time again i think there's one study that might have showed a somewhat positive effect it does increase your tolerability for sure don't deny that you can take you can take 120 grams and be fine but it's not doing anything it's not doing much else than that so yeah it'd be interesting 
if, if they could do a study where they sort of combine some studies that they've done in the past, where like, once you get to 90 grams, you cease to actually consume it and kind of do the protocol you described at the end of your race, where now they're just like swishing and spitting it out. Um, yeah. and see like what, what, what changes do they get with the, the presumed presence of 120 versus yeah. the actual presence of 120. Yeah. And there's something to be said for that anyway, because generally as time goes on through, through exercise, your ability to, because of the stress and you get more and more stressed as through duration and your ability to ingest and oxidize the carbohydrates becomes worse. So mm. this is why, you know, if you keep on going, you get, it can become more and more difficult. And um, that's why like some of my pros, for example, we kind of, when they, we do the swim and then we start the bike and we'll actually start higher and then kind of come down during the bike a little bit and then just maintain what they can during the run, just basically ad libium during the run and just take anything you're in your A stations. But we might start at like a hundred and then come down to 90 and by in the last like hour, they're at 60. You know, mm. I think that, that can be quite effective because then you're, you know, up high and then you're coming down to low when you're, when you're, um, particularly as you're getting ready to run as well, you don't really want to be starting the run with, um, with a full tummy right either so right it's it seems like triathlon is just built perfectly for this protocol because it's like you're not going to probably ingest or you if you are you're giving yourself a logistical hurdle if you're ingesting something during the swim so you sort of have this like time frame of um, abstaining from fuel while you're swimming and then you hit the bike which is going to be the most friendly spot to be ingesting high amounts of calories get a lot of it in there and then when you go to the run which is going to be a little less friendly but if you like described it the way you did where you're kind of overloading during this the bike stage you kind of have that that uh forgiveness built in yeah i think and i think that's the way i i tell my athletes is i think you have to look at it as though the ideal scenario is if you can start the run fully hydrated and fully topped up with carbohydrates like you haven't you know you can so basically the bike hasn't done anything then you're in the best position to run the best marathon you possibly can right so i mm-hmm. think you know and, and then and then you can kind of deplete over the course of the marathon I mean, when I, when I did Kona in 2018, I started the marathon and during that whole marathon, I just had two gels. So 60 grams of carbs during the entire marathon. And I had the fifth fastest marathon in the entire race, including professionals. So, you know, clearly, um, it was clearly, I think it's quite a good way to think about things, especially, especially when it comes to hydration, because, you know, if you look at dehydration and the effects of dehydration on performance, the big is like you can become gradually dehydrated during exercise and it doesn't seem to have much effect, um, you know, to, a, you know, almost three, four percent of your own body weight and people are still running and doing really well. But what is clear is if you start exercise dehydrated, oh. then you're in a pickle. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and that's that, that makes sense, too, because a lot of this, I think. like I can't think of a study that they've done on dehydration's impact on performance where they actually didn't preempt dehydration so that would make sense that if they're seeing that big of a drop off after like the two to three percent that then normally shows up that you know if you're starting like it would be exactly what you just said you're starting out with that deficit yeah, and- it's when you it's the starting that's the issue and this is mm-hmm. where the dehydration studies are, are quite smart it's easy to prove that dehydration reduces performance actually you just mm-hmm. especially if you dehydrate people a little bit before a performance test then generally they don't go as well but um if you're running during actually it's the opposite most people like the people who lose the most weight running largest percentage are generally running the quickest so inverse Mm -hmm. relationship so yeah 
Interesting. A bit of a pivot and just a question I want to ask, because I know I'm going to get some questions about this after I get them from any time this topic gets addressed is just uh, the pushback from maybe the less expected group, which is kind of the no carbers where um, I'll inevitably be asked like, well, why do you take in carbohydrate at all? And we've been talking about this to some degree, but maybe just a directly like when someone comes to me, they're like, well, gluconeogenesis is going to be enough to take that role if you reduce your carbohydrates down to to zero my response is always like gluconeogenesis is great but when you're asking your body to produce an energy output to the level that you're doing in like a marathon a triathlon even an ultra marathon it's just simply not fast enough so like it's it's a question of like it's a it's it's a more of a question of speed as much as it is like like application at that point, what are your thoughts about that? Or do you have any, any, uh, feedback around that topic? Yeah. I mean, I think we discussed it a little bit already. I, I think that, um, like one is, is, you know, the relative energy deficiency. I think when you really strictly deprive yourself of a whole macronutrient, you, you just run out of options a lot of the time. Like, you know, that think about what that means is that you can't have, you know, if you really want to be, zero carbohydrates you couldn't have any carrot you couldn't have any um any kind of pumpkin you couldn't have any of those sorts of like rooty vegetable foods right which are which are which are uh, you know i mean there's a lot of foods that are added to the list when you can add a, like 100 there's a big difference between um 50 grams and 130 grams in terms of how easy it is to live your life right mm-hmm. in terms it's quite hard to live your life in less than 50 grams per day it's easy to live your life with that with 130 to 150 and i think that's um i think that's an important differentiation is that it makes life a lot easier for one um and also i also think um well the, then the other the other per, the other point was um like i said before yeah is that i don't believe you should be in ketosis all the time um and if you actually look at um athletes who are permanently on a lower carbohydrate ketogenic diet and they measure the ketones in the morning eventually they will be out of ketosis in the morning and then they have this obsession with being in ketosis and then the only way they can do it is eating less and less fasting Mm -hmm. more you know and before you know it you've got this massive problem with athletes who are chasing ketones chasing the wrong target yeah chasing the wrong target and they're in a massive energy deficit because the only way they can get it is literally by not eating so you know i i just think why do you want to be on a zero carbohydrate diet when you're when everything's stable you know if your blood glucose is stable and 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 you're generally healthy the other point is that when people are in ketosis for long enough um the the ketosis will sometimes in many occasions it will bump up cortisol and the bumping up of cortisol will bump up glucocorticoid and then you see increases in blood blood glucose so many people who are in ketosis for too long We'll actually see the reverse effect and glucose starts going up. And I have an athlete, an age group athlete, and we have to actually, we know when his carbohydrate levels are too high, are too low because his blood glucose goes up, hmm. which is contrary to what we would believe, right? But then we find, okay, you need to add in some carbohydrates before bed. His blood glucose levels will come back down to between four and five. But if he gets too low for too long on the, on the carbohydrates, which he's guilty of a lot, um, then it, um, then we see his blood glucose going up. And uh, I think, again, if you're looking, if you're searching for optimal health and well-being, then it's probably not the best. Right. Yeah, you're in the same boat as the, the 30% in that study, but with a reverse <laughs> yes. dietary pattern. 
what about during the event itself? Is there, cause that's another pushback option. I'll be like, I remember someone was like, well, why are you taking in 40 grams or 50 grams of carbohydrate during the event itself? If your fat oxidation rates are high, shouldn't you be able to manage the, the, the glucose side of the equation through gluconeogenesis? And my response is always like, it's just not going to be quick enough. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't think you'll be, you won't be able to manage it quick enough on the glucose. What I mean, I mean, I'm not, I haven't really looked into it because it's, I think it's almost one of those things that I wouldn't look into because it seems so obvious that it's not going <laughs> to. Yeah. It's kind of a silly, I mean, like, I don't want to be offensive, but it says, seems like a silly question to me because like, when you just look at everything we've talked about and just like the, the sheer energy demand that you're asking yourself to put out, you know, like there's a, you, you would, you would think, you know, and when you're doing an event where you're metabolizing so much energy, it would be the equivalent of going essentially days without eating. It's like, you're just not going to perform as well after three days of no consumption <laughs> as you are going to in like a relatively fed state, regardless of the macronutrient you're and, taking. And that's, so. and that's the thing. It's all about performance. But that, at that stage of the game, it's all about performance, right? And and I think like, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hedge my bets and say that I'm going to get a more safer and consistent performance by putting in a small amount of carbohydrates. You know, I think you're just, um, you're, it's a bit of Russian roulette when you're just trying to just go off pure fats alone, you know, so, mm -hmm. yeah. Awesome. Well, Dan, this has been a fun chat. Um, I'm always interested to hear your take on this stuff. And again, I think, I think we actually talked about this offline, but uh, congratulations on your most recent half Ironman win. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So now I'm uh, I've got uh, challenge Roth in end of June. So awesome. Yeah, my big big Iron big, big challenge Ironman. So um, yeah, full steam ahead for that. Very did cool. Did a big did a big for me a big thirty k run this morning. Zach, you would have been proud. Yeah, a big, heck yeah. Hilly, a big hilly thirty k run. That's awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. No, good so, to hear it. Um, yeah. Well, thanks again. And uh, I know you're over in New Zealand, so it's. Friday morning for you, Thursday night for me. So I'll, I'll uh, let you get get going with your day. Thanks very much. Thanks, Zach. Ciao, ciao. Right. Yeah, take care, Dan. Have a good one. Hey, folks. Just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors are my friends at LMNT Electrolytes. They have a wide range of electrolyte supplements and are currently offering listeners to this podcast a free sample pack with purchase. If you are interested in checking them out and letting them know that you came to them through here, you can go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO or to the show sponsor landing page, which is just zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Links to that are in the show notes as well. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. -on -one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to a hundred miles and come in 
three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athlete's guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program. So you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zackbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode.